0: Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 337th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. The Urban Farm Podcast is sponsored by healthiq.com. As I get older, I am finding that leaving a legacy is becoming more important, and a big part of that is making sure my loved ones are financially sound when I depart. One way to do that is through life insurance. Health IQ is a life insurance agency that helps runners, cyclists, yogis, vegetarians, urban farmers, and other health-conscious people get lower rates on their life insurance. Visit healthiq.com forward slash urban farm to support our show and see if you qualify. Today on our podcast, we have someone who takes school lunches very seriously. We're talking with Chef Molly Beverly about school lunch as an academic subject. Hmm. Chef Molly Beverly is Prescott, Arizona's creative food activist and teacher. As Prescott College food service director and chef for nine years, she built the food service into a showcase of sustainable, educational, and tasty food. Molly has taught cooking since 1976 to adults and children at Prescott and Yavapai Colleges, most recently, Edible and Delicious Science for Kids. She is a regular writer for Edible Phoenix and operates a small organic farm and catering business. As chair of Slow Food Prescott, she champions school gardens and sustainable food education. Welcome to the show today, Molly. Are you ready to rock school lunches? Let's go. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and tell us more about the path you took to get where you're at today?
1: Well, I've always loved to cook and started cooking at a young age. My mother was an artist. She didn't want to be in the kitchen and just blossomed. I got a degree in English and secondary teaching credential. And then when I moved to Prescott, In 1974, there was an opening there for me to start teaching cooking at Yavapai College. I didn't really know that much, but I just jumped in. And I would say I have jumped in ever since because I love teaching. It is one of the best careers you can have. I meet people 20, 30 years later that say, I still cook your recipes.
0: Oh, nice. How cool is that? That's got to just make you feel extraordinary.
1: It's super rewarding and I've lived in this same place with 5 acres around me since that time and have had the opportunity to have a really nice garden to grow a lot of my own food to meet all the local food people, all the local farmers, champion the farmers market here since it's opening.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And Be involved with all kinds of teaching. Teaching really bumped up my experience because Mm -hmm. if I wanted to teach Indian cooking, I'd meet some woman who was running the gas station down the street and ask her if she was a good cook and get her to come in and show me stuff.
0: Oh, nice.
1: So I picked up this wealth international kind of cooking, and I'd start teaching classes in it.
0: Well, you know, and that's the best way to learn is to teach about it, right?
1: Yeah, because you got to act like you know what you're doing.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, and then you have to actually (laughs) fail and figure it out. So we mentioned in your bio, Slow Food Prescott. What is slow food for those people that don't know?
1: Food is a great food activist organization, and it is huge. It's an international organization that was started in 1986 by this visionary Italian, Carlo Petrini. And it's in 150 countries. There are 100,000 members. In the U.S., wow. we have 200 chapters.
2: <laughs> wow. Big
1: really big. In the U.S., there are 200 chapters, Mm -hmm. 20,000 members. In Arizona, we have a chapter in Phoenix, one in Tucson, and one in Prescott. Now, the Prescott chapter is different than a lot of chapters because it's a small town chapter. And we don't hang things on chefs. Like I would joke, I'm the chef. So I'm kind of a low-key chef. I don't have a big, expensive restaurant to run. Mm -hmm, right? We try to do everything at cost, make our events really affordable for everybody. We're a school gardens chapter. So we really focus on the schools and the teachers and the kids. But back to slow food, the basic precepts are good, clean, and fair food. That's easy to understand. Good is the enjoyment factor. Mm, Slow food, founded by Italians. We really believe in sitting down around the food, talking to people, enjoying what's on the plate, tasting it fully. The clean part is the environmental part. Mm -hmm. So slow food is a big player in small farms, local farms, GMO free, organic, sustainable. The fair part is the social justice part. So we want the farmers and the farm workers to be paid fairly. And it's not farmers there's fishermen, there's ranchers, we want them to be paid fairly for the work they do. We want to pay a fair price for the food we get
0: it's really the the opposite of fast food. The notion is right
1: well, when it was founded, the name came from the McDonald's was moving into one of the main piazzas in Rome, oh, and Carlo wow. Petrini then was like in his mid twenties and he got together with a bunch of friends and said. No way. And they founded this organization. Mm -hmm. The neat thing about Slow Food is not just that it's in a lot of countries, but it networks communities of food activists. So it's a grassroots organization, and it's always bubbling up with new ideas and creative ways of putting things together. There are slow communities, like there's slow wine, slow beans, slow cheese, slow fish, These are communities of artisan producers who get together. They have their own conferences. There is a Slow Food Youth Network, a Chef's Alliance. An Indigenous Peoples Network, and here in this country, it has just morphed into what they call Turtle Island. So the Indigenous people, I think in Canada, also have gathered together this Turtle Island community. They have a university in Italy, the University of Gastronomic Sciences. (laughs) Wow. So it's an incredible organization. Mm-hmm. And they have every other year, they have the world's biggest food show, all artisan produced foods in Italy, in Turin. And it will be in September this year. Wow. Are you going?
0: Uh, yeah, I would love to. Probably not, because that's a busy time of year for me. So if you want to find more about Slow Food USA, go to slowfoodusa.org. And I'm sure the chapters all over the country are listed there.
1: I forgot one other thing. Please. They have a biodiversity campaign, which promotes heritage foods Ooh. and recognizes them. Mm-hmm. And so it's called the Ark of Taste, like Noah's Ark.
0: Oh, yes. I've heard of that.
1: Almost everybody's heard about heritage foods and heirloom foods. So these are foods that are at risk of being lost because of mass production and or being degraded by some kind of mass production, like Nutella is one of those examples. Nutella was this hazelnut chocolate cream that was made in France, and now it's a list of artificial ingredients.
2: Mm. So
1: they recognize plants, animals, and ways of doing things. It's not so much recipes as ways of doing things. And that's called the Arc of Taste. And we have quite a few foods from the Southwest that are on the Arc of Taste. And as a Slow Food Chapter, we try to feature those foods. We try to save these foods by eating more of them.
0: Mm, By supporting the market.
1: Yeah, some mesquite flour. Lots of people say mesquite. Oh, we have this barbecue, right? Well, the mesquite is a desert tree yes. that is a legume and has pods, wheat pods, makes a delicious flower. The native desert people lived off of that. It was a very important food for them. And by recognizing it, serving it, we produce a market for right. it. This is an arid region, a plant that is, you notice it's dry, <laughs>
2: it's
1: getting drier we need more arid region plants developed. Right. This right. is kind of an unculturally undeveloped plant. I think my theory, because it was so easy for the native people to harvest. So they didn't develop it yeah. agriculturally.
0: Yeah, exactly. Mesquite beans make an incredible flower. Heidi and I actually use it often in our cooking. So I want to shift a little bit though. I, I want to talk about school lunches. Let's talk about your inspiration to be so focused on school lunches. Tell me about that.
1: Well, as I mentioned, our little chapter is a what we call a school garden chapter. And school gardens is more than just showing kids how to plant a carrot. School gardens is the bigger idea of food literacy so that children understand what food is. This is a way to counter the mass production, hyper-processed, chemicalized foods that are, what, 90% of the grocery store. Right. So we work with supporting school gardens. Mm -hmm. So a relatively new facet of this is if you have a school garden and you're teaching kids about plants and how to taste and all that, And then they go into the cafeteria, and they're eating more hyper-processed, commercialized, where-does-it-come-from food, and they're just marching them. In and out, there's a school here in town where the lunch period is 15 minutes. They're marching them in and out of there. School lunch is an academic subject is an idea that was put forth by Alice Waters. She is the vice president of Slow Food International. Mm -hmm. But Alice Waters has been around since the 70s. She opened a little restaurant in Berkeley, and she is one of the most influential food people in this country. Yep. She started the local food movement. She had this little restaurant there in Berkeley, and all these graduate students who were like studying anthropology and history and mathematics and science, they came and worked in her restaurant, probably a couple hundred Mm-hmm. And they went out and started their own restaurants, their own food deal. If you remember back in the 60s and 70s, local food was non-existent. Right. Except maybe in a few specialty food mm-hmm. cities. But for the most part, let's talk about California. No. Even San Francisco. No. People, didn't, there were no farmer's markets. Nobody thought about local food Mm -hmm. alice waters actually went to the farmer and said i want you to grow this for me
0: (laughs) and one of the things
1: he got them to grow was all those little salad mixes that you buy in the grocery store oh
0: yes the spring greens mix
1: before alice no Mm -hmm. it was head lettuce romaine lettuce bib lettuce you know they had a couple of different kinds of lettuces
0: iceberg lettuce
1: yeah but not all those little greens. Yeah. That she did that. So she also was instrumental in starting this whole school garden movement, which mm-hmm. is really arriving at some kind of tipping point. As Slow Food has a goal of having a school garden in every school. And the information is getting out there, the research is being done. Her daughter went to school there
2: mm-hmm. at
1: Martin Luther King Middle School in Berkeley. And she got the principal to plow up the playground <laughs> and put in nice. a garden. Nice. So, this is her latest deal. This is a little soft spoken woman. Mm-hmm. This is her latest deal, and I'm quoting her. What if we could feed all children a free school lunch prepared from scratch, produced from local sustainable ingredients that farmers are paid fairly for, and for a full School lunch hour treated as an academic subject. She wants us to change how we think about school lunch.
0: Yeah, big time.
1: Yeah, school lunch integrated into the academic curriculum every day. So if you want to see her explain this, mm-hmm. there's a good video about the Edible Schoolyard Project which is edibleschoolyard.org.
0: Perfect. So what changes are you advocating from this for lunch periods in schools? What's your push in Prescott?
1: I am following her, and she is giving out a sample meal Uh and inviting people to come. So we just had one two weeks ago.
0: You did? Really? Tell us about that.
1: So we had four schools in attendance, and we had over 80 people. About one-third of them were children. It was a sample of the vision of what school lunch could be.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: First of all, it was family style. The tables were set nicely with tablecloths. They had centerpieces made by some of the students. They had placemats. The placemats illustrated the heritage foods that were in the menus. We had two high school groups cook a lot of the food. You want me to read you the menu?
0: Don't read the menu. Just give us an idea of what was on it.
1: We had four heritage foods. We had the tono odom kusha squash, which are weigh 15 pounds. Wow. And I got five of them donated by Farmer Frank Martin.
0: We love Farmer Frank down here. He's a rock star. Yeah.
1: And we took those into the classroom. So there were four classrooms that had those squash sitting there. Because they're so big, they're kind of like a persona unto themselves. And they even gave them names, did drawings of them. And then two of the schools cooked them up and Cut them up and made them into food that we ate. Mm-hmm. And we had tepri beans. The tepri beans are a desert bean that were brought back from near extinction mm-hmm. by Ramona Farms.
0: Yay, Ramona Farms.
1: Yay, Ramona Farm. And so we had a Taperdine and a blue corn stew. The blue corn was grown by my husband. It's a Hamasque Pueblo Heritage blue corn. Mm-hmm. We had Sonoran white wheat and toasted mesquite Fortillas, so we had the mesquite flour in there. We also use the mesquite flour and the blue corn in some mesquite blue corn chocolate chip cookies, which I can put uh, the recipe up for you on that.
0: Oh, that would be nice if we could put that on the show notes page.
1: And we took this, the Tona Odom squash, which is a kusha squash, and made it into a dessert pudding cake with a pumpkin seed topping. So those were the four heritage foods that were part of the menu.
0: I think I need to cut you off because I need to go eat some of this. I'm getting hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You're proposing this for school lunches.
1: Yes. You know, this is an idea that is new, really new. It's just getting started. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to expose people to it. This is something that I plan on doing every year. I experienced it with 500 people at the Slow Food National Conference in Denver in July. Mm -hmm. Slow Food Phoenix put on one of these lunches, but it was a fundraiser. It was done a little differently. Right. But people are starting to roll this idea out. And this is kind of the first step. The food is simple with a minimum of preparation.
0: But a maximum of exquisiteness.
1: Yes. Maximum flavor. The kids prepared it. Wow. They get to taste what it tastes like. We actually had local raw honey on the table, which the kids were really dipping into big time. This is raw honey, so it really tastes like honey. The first phase is kind of exposure. Mm -hmm. We know that there is a a huge resistance to this. Yeah. Because the fast food culture is in the schools. The food's processed, it's institutionalized, and the companies behind it are very powerful. Yeah. But it is a great opportunity to teach in a real experiential way. Yeah. And we know that experiential learning really works. And there is actually research being done on this. Mm -hmm. Also funded by Alice Waters. It's called the School Lunch Initiative. Perfect. You can find the report at schoollunchinitiative.org.
0: Nice. I want to know what kind of response you're getting from people on this.
1: Well, this was our first rollout like two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. We had 80 people there, mm-hmm. probably about, you know, I, I really did everybody because I had these schools involved and, they were having parents and kids. It wasn't free, but we charged the students and their parents $3 a head to come.
2: Uh-huh.
1: But we didn't really know who, how many who was coming. But we filled up a room with 80 people. And I forgot to tell you that one of the schools put on a little violin concert that was so cute. It was...
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Of course they all love performing. One of the high schools gave a report on the three sisters, mm-hmm. corn beef, corn beans and squash, so we got history, culture, music, entertainment. Nice. It was a great event. The food was delicious. I'm not really sure what the greater effect... I'm kind of a believer in like planting seeds out there in the world. Mm -hmm. And being a part of slow food enhances and powers what I do because this is happening all over the country. I have faith in Alice Waters, all the stuff that she's done. Yeah. That it's going to be enhanced. And we might not be able to actually do all of this, you know, everything she's asking for, for it to be completely free for every student in this country and to be totally self-sufficiency, local, organic, you know, all those parameters. But if we hit two or Mm 3 And I learned from running the food service at Prescott College. You don't let perfect get in the way of good. If we hit two or three of those, it's going to be a great change and have a big influence. Big time. And the influence is the kids are actually learning better.
0: Imagine that.
1: (laughs) Imagine that. They do better on their, their test scores. Right. And they're healthier. They go away in their lives with a higher preference for fruits and vegetables. And you know, Jamie Oliver did work. Lots of kids don't even know what a potato is.
0: Right. Or where it comes from.
1: Or where it comes from. The kids get their hands in the food, they see it, they understand the history, the culture. These are values that are pretty debased in our society. The background of food is hidden. You go to the grocery store, you buy a box of something, who knows what that is or where it came from. I love food history. I can tell you a lot about practically anything. Yeah. All the background. I can tell. That's one of my passions.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I can tell.
1: So it's history, economics, it's health, it's nutrition, It's intelligence, right? How can we not do
0: this? (laughs) I wholeheartedly, absolutely agree. And I want to shift on you. And I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame the failure and what you learned from it.
1: I love this question because I'm a chef. I've always been pretty big on the bounce back. So uh, changing the situation up, so in, in the chef's world, you're just laid by kitchen disasters. And it's show business. you got to make things look perfect, right? Right. So the food burns or somebody drops a pan or the employees get sick or the equipment fails or you go out for a catering job and you forget something and you're out in the middle of nowhere.
2: Uh, 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 right. The
1: axe chefs love this. This is a characteristic of a chef. And Anyone out there who wants to be a chef, you better know that if you don't love this going for the wrong thing.
0: Yeah, it's chaos sometimes.
1: The high intensity that what we call the kitchen dance. Yeah. Think on your feet, moments. So, but occasionally there's no way out. Mhm. You're usually in a remote spot and you're catering with no time or resources to make up something you're missing. Like you just didn't make enough food or 30 people more showed up for the meal than they ordered. At least you can blame them. But sometimes it's your mistake, and you're stuck there apologizing.
0: Yeah, so tell me what you're learning is from this.
1: Well, one thing I learned is I never run out of food. <laughs> <laughs> I never run out of food. I t- I always make more. I always re- do my calculations three times over mm-hmm. and add about... 20%. And I take Ziploc bags and I give away the extra food. Everybody's happy. Yeah. They hire me back. It's kind of like a, a heart grab. Mm. It's, yeah. it's like it's seared into my memory. Yeah. The times I ran out of food, which were very few, but
0: mm. very
1: embarrassing. Yeah. So that's the failure.
0: <laughs> so what do you consider your biggest success?
1: My biggest success was the Prescott College job that I had for nine years. I was a cooking teacher,
2: uh-huh. and
1: I did a little catering on the side. Mm-hmm. I had practically no professional background, and I was 57 years old. I dropped into that food service director position. Gary Naphan told me to take it.
0: Oh, nice. He
1: said... Tell them what they want to hear. I had been doing a little catering for the college, Mm -hmm. but I was dropped into this position with a, had to design the kitchen. They were finishing the building. Completely responsible for hiring and schedules and ordering and budget and multiple events with a full restaurant going on all the time. It's Prescott College doesn't have a cafeteria. It has Mm -hmm. a cafe. And on top of that, got all that going, interfaced with practically every student in the school and created an educational food service that showcased food as a story and history and background with environmental consequences and nutritional consequences and it wasn't perfect because the economics of it were really difficult but I I was always able to showcase something educational and that's when I started the slow food chapter because I couldn't afford in my budget to buy everything Mm -hmm. that I wanted to buy I thought at least we can start championing the right values that was my biggest success I retired it was a big job. Yeah. Really big job. A little bit trial by fire. I worked on it 24 hours a day.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was working on that job while I was asleep.
0: Right. Well, our brain does that, absolutely. So what drives you?
1: That's kind of a hard because I love creativity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I love coming up with an idea. Whether it's a food idea or it's a teaching idea, I love coming up with an idea and making it work. Like that,
2: mm-hmm.
1: what I call the Alice Waters School Lunch. That came into my head. Let's do that. Yeah, And putting all the pieces in place, coming up with the menu, pulling the people together, and, and having it be a success. There's nothing better than that.
0: <laughs> oh, I hear you.
1: Hot shit, you know? Oh, did I say that on the radio? That's, That's okay. <laughs> That's good.
0: That's good. <laughs> so if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and Why?
1: I had one thing written down here, and then I came up with something else while I was waiting for the call. So I just want to tell people that the Slow Food USA school garden website actually has three books on it, all lessons in school gardens and cooking that you can download as PDF. And I have used them a lot. The ones I love the most, because I teach edible and delicious science for kids, Mm -hmm. are the Sensory Training which teaches kids how to taste. Probably, and I've done it with adults too. Mm -hmm. It's amazing that people don't really taste We don't really know that we only have five or six sensors on our tongue. We only taste five or six different chemicals, but the nose makes up for it. So that's on the website. If you go to Slow Food USA, School Garden, or Google Mm -hmm. search that, you will see those books. But just recently, I have come upon a wonderful series of books by Michael J. Caduto, Mm C-A-D-U-T-O, called Native American... This one's Native American Gardening, Ooh. Stories, Projects, and Recipes for Families. And he, there's about five books out with this similar topic by the same author. Keepers of the Night, Native American Stories and Nocturnal Activities for Children.
0: Wow, that sounds like a fun read.
1: Keepers of the Of life, covering plants through Native American stories and earth activities for Mm -hmm. children. Keepers of the animals, Native Uh American stories and wildlife activities for children. They're really good. And you can get them cheap um, on you-know-where.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, we'll have links for them on our our show notes page. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: Grow something. Cook something. And share the experience with children.
0: Yeah. Beautiful.
1: And don't be discouraged by failure. It's all lessons.
0: Yeah, that's how we learn. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Molly.
1: You're welcome. It's been fun.
0: It's been a delight. How can our listeners get a hold of you?
1: I am available through my Slow Food email address, mm-hmm. which is Prescott. Prescott has two T's in it. A-Z at SlowFoodUSA.org.
0: Perfect. Say that one more time for us.
1: Prescott A Z
2: Perfect.
0: You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash slowfoodprescott. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. The Urban Farm Podcast is sponsored by HealthIQ.com. A decade and a half ago, I took on a very interesting personal goal, to run the Arizona Rock and Roll Half Marathon from the first running in 2004 until I was the only one that had run them all. They call us Legacy Runners. Since then, my times have slowed down a bit, but my commitment is stronger than ever. In fact, I just ran my 15th year in a row, and interestingly, there are less than 100 of us Legacy Runners left. Wouldn't it be cool if a life insurance agency rewarded me for that health-minded achievement? Well, I found one that will. Health IQ uses an exclusive qualifying process that helps health-conscious people like runners, cyclists, yogis, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance. And if you have records like race results or those cool reports we get from the apps logging our efforts, Health IQ takes this into consideration to get you even more savings. Visit healthiq.com forward slash urban farm to support our show and see if you qualify. Just like saving money on your car insurance for being a good driver, Health IQ saves you money on your life insurance for living a health-conscious lifestyle.
2: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org